Thank you for downloading the Root Simple Podcast, your guide to gardening, urban homesteading, and home economics. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knudsen, and Kelly Coyne. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Act for a Post-Consumer World. Our guest this week is Craig Hempel, Recycling Coordinator for the City of Burbank, a city of over 104,000 people within Los Angeles County. Craig was our guest on episode 42 of the podcast. In that episode, we discussed inorganic waste and the challenges of recycling. We're having Craig back on to talk about organic waste, what goes in our green bin, what happens to it, and how turning that waste into a resource could just about change the world. Welcome, Craig. Welcome back, Craig, to the Root Simple podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me. This is my favorite topic organics and restoration and soils and all that stuff. This yeah, always a, gets me excited. It's a lot to talk about, but I thought maybe first, and since last time we, we kind of talked about inorganic waste, I think we need to define what organic waste is. And uh, Kelly and I were just, we, we call it green waste, but I don't yeah, know if that's that... the proper proper name for it. What do, what do you call it and what is it? Yeah, well, I, I like to call it nutrients because that's okay. really what it is. And it's a it's a storehouse of nutrients. And um, unfortunately, we've given it this nomenclature of waste, and we've kind of hardened that language around it. And I think it really goes back to kind of mid-century, you know, mid-1900s, um, when we started building suburbs and we started landscaping uh, with this with a very minimalistic style. And it became a flat plain of grass, a couple of little border plantings, and a sidewalk going out to the street. And um, you know, the the trees came later, but those first those tracked houses kind of set a tone for the U.S. I think, and it seemed to be universal from east coast to west coast, even though we had in in totally different climates. And what I'm talking about here is just the landscape clippings that you know come off of yards. Um, but then organics also includes food waste, and that can be anything from where it's grown to how it's uh, shipped and warehoused and, and uh, transported and distributed to the retailers, to the home refrigerator and shelves. And, uh, um, you know, so food is, you know, I, I think a lot of people have heard this in the last few years that we're wasting close to half of our food that comes out of the ground. And it's it's lost at all those stages, and a lot of it is just right in our kitchens. Um, you know, we just overbuy or we don't plan well, and and so we we lose a lot of that. As a result of our landscapes and our food, um, you know, forty, you know, thirty to fifty percent of everything that has been thrown away in landfills over the past number of decades is stuff that could go back to the ground, and it's all nutrient-rich material. And um, in the southern, you know, here in the southland of, you know, California, we have so little moisture, and those organics, if they're put back in the soil, have tremendous water-holding power, and they also have tremendous nutrients to release. And I can give you some examples here, um, because I, I see Burbank's numbers and, and how, we, how we manage this stuff. Right now, we don't have any programs uh, for food 
other than a few spotty, um, which I say, separation processes that go on after everything is thrown together. So there's a number of ways to collect waste. And right now what's happening all over the U.S. and uh, other places as well is waste is just being thrown into one, one bin. A truck picks it up, they take it to a facility, they spread it out on sorting belts, uh, they run it through screens, magnets, uh, now they're getting into fancy things like eddy currents and um, optical sorters. But out of that mix, you get this really contaminated organic stream, and it's, you know, it can be grass clippings and dog dew and, you know, all sorts of things that, that end up in the waste. So that's really funky stuff, and the, probably the best you can do with that is um, kind of put it in a big tank, digest it anaerobically, and get some fuel out of it because, boy, you start putting that on farmland and I think you've got a plastics legacy that's going to build mm. over the decades, and, mm. you know, just contaminants and other things. If you can keep the organics uh, clean and separate them and um, get them back onto the soil, now you've, now you've got some real growing horsepower. And in Burbank, for instance, we have about 105,000 residents. We have about 22,000, 21, 22,000 single-family homes. And all those single-family homes are usually on, you know, maybe a six, 7,000 square foot lot on average. And they generate maybe 1,500 pounds a year of just yard clippings. And so it adds up to about 20,000 tons of yard clippings get hauled out of the city every year. We don't have a composting facility here within the city. So we spend nearly a million dollars, well over a million dollars, probably two or three million dollars collecting that at the curb and then hauling it out of the city. And that means hundreds of thousands, um, well, let me back up here. I'll split this up a little bit for you, kind of give you an idea. We do collections every week at those 23,000 or 22,000 homes. Uh, we have about 19 trucks running around the city every day doing that. And uh, they run every day of the week for 52 weeks. So they usually, on that, uh, on that one collection, they're probably, each truck is probably running 10, 12 miles, something like that. So that's a, that's a huge number right there just for the collection trucks. You know, 52 weeks, five days, 10 miles. Um, you, you get a lot of miles, and then you get a lot of emissions. And these trucks are getting maybe three miles to the gallon because they're stopping and starting every, you know, 50 to 70 feet. And uh, then we, we take all those collections, all the yard clippings, they go to our landfill. We then transfer them into these big, long, you know, 90 cubic yard trucks and we haul it to Chino for composting. And uh, so there's about a 55-mile leg there, and we, we run um, almost, I think it's 900 to 1,000 loads a year on that route. So, you know, round trip, it's 100 miles. So, you know, right there, it's almost 100,000 miles a year, just in the long-haul trucks. So your emissions are huge. Um, the stuff doesn't come back to your own soils. So what you're doing is, you know, the, 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 the plants are basically pulling minerals out of the soil and, you know, creating uh, carbon from the atmosphere. 
Um, you're throwing it in a bin, shipping it 50 miles out of town, and then you go to the garden center to replace all those nutrients that you've just vacuumed up, and you have to replace all that. And your soil is basically left at, a, at just a mineral state with a very low organic content. When you have uh, just minerals, there's very little activity in the soil and very little water holding capacity. So you're losing just tremendous amounts of growing power when you remove this stuff from landscapes. Um, the other side, you know, the, the better way to do this is to look at how neighborhoods can start using their organics on site. And we have some programs here in the, in the city. For instance, when our tree trimmers go out and uh, work on the street trees, they run everything through a chipper. And then those chips are left at parks or they're dropped on people's driveways if they call in for them. And uh, that's you know quite a quite a good number of tons. I don't have the numbers in my head on that, but um, you know quite a few truckloads a month um, are distributed back to the neighborhoods, and that can be thrown on top of the soil as as mulch to hold weeds, hold moisture, eventually break down and, and re-release nutrients into the soil. Um, but the the softer tissue materials like the the grass clippings, the weeds, the prunings, the light prunings with leaves on them, uh, those are those are really soil building uh, tissues. Um, whenever you have chlorophyll in a leaf, for instance, it's very high in nitrogen. So all those green parts of the plant, all the all the uh, photosynthetic parts of the plant are really high in nitrogen. And, you know, nitrogen is important for building proteins. It's important for uh, uh, plant growth. Um, it keeps microbes happy in the, in the soils. Um, so when those things are dropped back on the soil, um, you're getting great microbial colonization in between all of those little uh, mineral particles of the soil. And every one of those little microbes is like a little encapsulated, you know, micro baggie, if you will, of moisture. So all these living colonies of microbes are holding water, and then they have symbiotic relationships with fungi, which actually plug into roots. And the roots are now, now have these extension cords on them that can run out to different mineral and nutrient sources and feed the plant. Meanwhile, the plant also feeds nutrients and carbohydrates out of the roots to help, fill, help feed the microbial colonies down below. So you have photosynthesis going up in the air and carbon coming in from the air. It's going down through the plant, out through the roots, feeding colonies down there, but they also need carbon in the soil to help them grow. And so you start to see how all these things are knitted together. And I know I've created a very complicated conversation for a, <laughs> for a <Yeah>. podcast. <laughs> but it, it, when you start to see the complexities of how well nature has orchestrated this, and when you see how we've interrupted those cycles, you kind of wonder, well, how is engineering helping us? Um, mm -hmm. So the things, the things that get me excited are when I start to hear things about local composting programs, backyard composting, mulching, um, when people are contouring soils to capture water. Um, <laughs> excuse me. 
when they start to knit these things together, they begin to realize that even in a dry climate, if you can shade and cool the soil, um, either with canopies, closely growing plants, or mulches, or all of them, and then you're contouring soils so that your yards are more like teacup saucers or, you know, little dry stream beds or little bathtubs or little pits that you can now fill with mulch and leaves and organics. And as those things break down, now you have a soup bowl of nutrients. And if you plant around that, the plants can kind of temper themselves in, in where they place the roots. And almost like coffee grounds or tea bags, as water goes down through these organic materials, these old plant materials, and they're decomposing and releasing nutrients, it is just like a brew of coffee or tea that now starts saturating the soil. And not only will that bowl of organics start to soften, but that softening effect and that moisturizing effect will start moving away from that mulch pit or that rain garden or that swale that is rich in, in, uh, in organics, those, those, the colonies that feed on that will start to move outward from that, and you're going to see a spreading of the benefits around that first beginnings. Now, these things take you know, years. They don't, they don't happen overnight. And a lot of people are impatient, so they just want to you know, go buy some fertilizer and dump it on the plant and see it get green you know, within a few days. But these soil-building um, projects do take months to years. And every year, if you add more organics to your soil, you'll see the soil just get darker and richer and better. And um, it, it's, it's just, a, I think it's an absolute miracle. I just can't get enough of this. And I can't tell the story enough times because it, it works so well. And just in my own yard a few years back, I, uh, I have a big palm tree that, you know, I never would have planted this thing, but it's, it's so bulletproof to our, our, our dry climate and uh, the heat that we've been having over the last number of years that I realize it's kind of a blessing. Um, but it, uh, it drops um, maybe 60 to 80 big palm fronds every year, and they're, you know, 15 feet long. And it creates a pile of stuff. And palm fronds are kind of tough on equipment mm. in green waste programs. A lot of times they don't want them in the, in the, in the curbside bins. And um, it's, it's because of the type of grinders that are used to chip all this green waste that, you know, there I said it, uh, all these clippings that come out of the yards. Um, so palm fronds aren't, aren't uh, favored in the collection programs and in the commercial composting operations. But what I found was I, I could dig trenches in my yard and drop these things in, and now years later I have a core of something that looks like peat moss. It's like a wick. Huh. And my, my downspouts feed into it, and so when it rains, this wick just swells up with water, and it it carries it underground uh, th through my backyard. And I've noticed that, um, you know, with the, the gray water from my washing machine and uh, the water that we fling from our kitchen sink and our, our shower, um, my trees have never done better, ever. 
and they're getting nutrients and they're getting moisture and the moisture seems to be held in the soil for you know days to weeks to even months i've i've dug down into this um you know weeks after rain and it's still just beautiful cool moist soil you have created so, a Southern California hugel culture with with palm fronds. With palm yeah, fronds. exactly. This is genius, it it Craig. really is. A, <laughs> it is like a hugel culture, which is a big, you know, deposit of organic material, usually heavy, woody material. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, what I'm seeing in my own experiments is that it takes a couple of years for the hugel culture to kind of colonize, and that it's not an immediate effect. I don't think the first year, unless you're using kind of light. Um, you know, lightweight materials that we're going to break down quickly. If you use a lot of heavy wood material, I think it would take a few years before that really starts to um, colonize and and starts to decompose. But um, in thinking about that, you have, you know, kind of quick-acting and short-term organics that are going to break down quickly and, and sort of feed those colonies in the first, you know, weeks to months. And then if you have big, chunky wood, that might feed your colonies, you know, for five to ten to twenty years, depending on what it is. So I think you could, you know, kind of by combining some of those materials, the quick acting and slower uh, responding materials, you could have a a hugel culture with a with a long arc of nutrient staying power. Um, so it's something us? to think about. And and I, but I'm I'm convinced that this this is absolutely um, the way to. To, to go and uh, get these organics out of the trucks and all the emissions and congestion and just the sheer overhead of keeping that uh, that style of organics management alive is just millions of dollars and it's most of it goes up in smoke and most of it is you know buildings and parking lots and fuel lines that have to feed these trucks. So I, I had a f- actually a few more questions about oh the gosh, way things yeah. are, but yeah, I know I'm I'm, I'm okay. just going to roll if you don't. <laughs> no, because I, you know you took it to. A, we went to a beautiful place there, but I want to I want to get back to the kind of. And I have Google culture questions. Oh yeah, Kelly has Google questions. We'll, we'll get to this. But yeah, yeah but, I mean everything you say, we are so we're so yeah, behind you. It's I, it's a crazy crazy system. It is crazy. It's and inherently wasteful. I was just curious yeah. what happens to the compost you you said that that's made now that with. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What what happens to that? Um, there are a number of uh, commercial composting sites that are sort of circling LA County. Most of them aren't in the county because it's it's hard to permit them in our air basin, and so as a result of that difficulty in in getting them, and there are some. I'm I'm not saying there aren't, but a lot of them are kind of on the fringes of the county. Um. So generally at these composting facilities, they will sort materials. Um, They might be getting scrap lumber, uh, you know, framing material. It could be particle board, could be plywood. um, And then they get uh, yard clippings. They get tree removals, uh, big root balls, um, you know, big trunks, um, upper canopy branches and, you know, chips and, uh, the kinds of things that you'd find in, at a home or a commercial landscape where it's mostly mowers and uh, hedge trimmers and things like that. So all of this stuff comes into these facilities. They sort it out, um, and then generally they they have to pull out a lot of garbage because in some neighborhoods I've heard as much as 30% of it coming in is garbage. 
and that's plastic pots, mm. it's household um, refuse, it's uh, street litter, um, you know, lunches from the landscape crews, um, all that kind of stuff, trays, flats, um, fertilizer bags, you know, just all of it. All of it ends up in the, in the uh, landscape carts and in bins. So it has to be sorted. Then it goes to uh, chipping, grinding, and screening. And uh, the big chips are sometimes used on the coarsest of landscapes, or they even go to fuel. So there's still boilers in the state that, where they make cement and just need a lot of heat, and they'll you know, burn a lot of stuff in those. Um, and that would probably be where your, you know, particle board and plywood and, you know, things that you don't want to throw back in the ground on agricultural soils would go. Um, the other woods can be chipped up. The finer, the, the finer chips that might be, you know, half inch, three quarters of an inch or something, those are probably going to go into the compost piles along with food, food waste if they're permitted for that. Uh, manures, if they're permitted for that, um, and then after this is after it's composted, some uh, some composting facilities will blend it with other soil minerals that the farms need. They'll do custom blends. They might bag it for retail. They more likely will sell it bulk to orchards and farms where it's spread. Um, so it, it, you know, it, it streams out of the back of these composting facilities in a lot of different ways. Mm, but it doesn't come home generally. It doesn't come back to the residential. No, there's state. usually not a U-turn on these contracts, and I think cities are a little shy about, um, you know, being. Uh, what should I say? When you have you know piles for people to pick up, or when you have deliveries, there's a cost to it. And generally, they've got enough budget to take it one way, but not the other. Yeah, you got to truck it back. So, mm. yeah. yeah. Now, City of L.A. has done a nice job with, um, they've had free mulch sites. They've got a number of them. There might be, God, I mean, there may be 10 or 12 of them mm. around the City of L.A. And other cities have done this, too, where they will, um, they'll, they'll, compost this. I won't call it fully composted material. It's not quite at that stage. There's still a lot of woody material in it. And it smells like it's kind of gone through an anaerobic process rather yeah. than an aerobic mm -hmm. process. It's, it has kind of a sour, you know, acrid smell to it. Um, like it just hasn't had enough air. And um, a lot of people report that if they mix this into the root zone with their plants where the plants are feeding, there's too much un processed carbon, it would be like wood chips in it, that actually robs your plants of nitrogen because the microbes that are breaking down that wood are also taking new, uh, the nitrogen out of the soil. And so your plants are stunted and they don't grow well. The mulch that you would find in the city programs would be best laid on top of the soil, on top of the roots, and those roots will know whether they can come up into it or not. Um, it lets the plant choose where it feeds, and plants are pretty darn smart that way. They can they can tell where th where things are good. Now, how um, do you feel about using that uh, the compost actually? Because I know some people have concerns about heavy metals and things like that. Is it mm -hmm. tested? Uh, would you use it? I I would say that you know twenty thirty years ago when. Um, 
I, I used to, I worked on a golf course in the seventies, and we used to get the uh, the compost that came out of Milwaukee. Um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It was called Milorganite, and I think it's still <laughs> around. Um, it was basically, you know, now what they've now what they call it are biosolids. In those days, it was called sewage sludge. Uh, same thing comes out of the back of a sewage treatment plant. And before we had very good controls in the in the United States on on industrial processors, a lot of the same water that was coming out of you know bad chemistry plants. And my dad was a metal finisher. I grew up around his, his conversations about heavy metals. All of that was dumped into the public sewage system. Or, worse still, it was dumped into a sewer system that never went through any treatment. So it, when, those, when those companies were unregulated, heavy metals were a big deal. And they were truly a big deal in the sewage plants. These days, I think we've reduced that tremendously. Um, I'm not going to give it a seal of approval because, you know, there's always the, the rogue industries that get away with dumping things. And, um, you know, even the household chemicals, people throw a lot of stuff in those. And uh, the sewage treatment plants are getting everything from the, you know, personal hygiene, plastic parts to syringes to condoms to, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, a lot of that will break down, not the, not the synthetics, but, you know, the, the biological hazards, a lot of those are broken down in this whole mix of microbes. But heavy metals are another thing. They, they might combine with other things to make them more inert, but they're still going to be there, and, and those chemistries can, you know, those equations can flip-flop around. So it, it doesn't give me a lot of confidence in using things that um, have come out of sewage plants. It, you know, it, some of that might be, you know, some historical fear, and some of it might be measurable, you know, real progress or real problems. You know, just and it, it entirely depends on kind of the day of the week if, you know, if something has surged through that system that, you know, didn't get caught, um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of luck of the draw. Mm. Overall, though, I, I have to say that our Clean Water Act has really gotten stronger in the last, you know, 40, 50 years, and uh, we, have, we have made great strides in cleaning up industry. And, uh, in, in spite of what I'm saying, I know there's still huge disasters and there's still huge emissions, but um, I would say that we're, you know, a lot of that has moved in, in, a, in a positive direction. Now, I know there's been some issues, too, with persistent herbicides in compost. Is that something mm -hmm. that, that concerns you or you've dealt with personally? Yeah. Uh, if you go back about 10, 15 years ago, there was some stuff, and I can never pronounce it correctly. It was I always forget the name of it, too. Yeah. Yeah, and that was persistent enough that it was being used on, you know, urban uh, yards and going through these municipal, you know, composting programs, being spread out on fields, and it was wiping out carrot crops, and I think there were a few other things. So that one did get banned. It was just, you know, horribly persistent. And um, I think, you know, some cities have made great strides in uh, banning... Um, 
pesticides on ornamentals. Mm. I think Toronto is one city that's done that. I know there are others that I haven't kept up with the list. Um, but I think it's a great policy. You know, why are we why are we banning these uh, uh, you know chemicals that are so broad? You know, it has such a broad spectrum of of damage. Um, why are we using those just to get an aesthetic um, sterility? You know, in 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 yards. I, I it think all it all comes back around to to the, the home landscape and how we perceive the home landscape. There's got to be like kind of a theory of everything. Like if we if we can change our aesthetics regarding what a home landscape should look like and embrace things like the like the aesthetics of mulching and letting leaves lay where they fall and, and that kind of thing, then you don't need the pesticides, you don't need the fertilizers, you know, and it, it all flows from that, from, I think, from right. the homeowners, right. or, or not, you know, the homeowners specifically, but as I guess as a culture, us understanding that there are other ways to landscape and and... And if we embrace those things, then it all starts falling into place. And then you become, once you're landscaping like that, then you're really interested in things like good sources of mulch, clean compost, etc. And then you would be willing to support programs like local composting. Because once you get into this, you find it's hard to find the inputs. Um, and it can be hard to make enough of that on your own land, depending on, you know, how much input you have, um, how much material you generate off your land, uh, which brings up the the concept of localized, like, neighborhood composting systems, which I think is something you're interested in, right? I remember you, yeah. told, you had some dreams about that. And then you also mentioned <laughs> before we rolled tape here about some bicycle So that's exciting. I think we should you, focus on yeah, that a little bit. Before, yeah. well, so we bummed everyone out. Let's get back to the, the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, things yeah. Are, well, yeah, Kelly, things I, are grim, but, we, you know, we, there's hope. <laughs> yeah, no, and Kelly, I'm really glad you brought up this whole conversation about aesthetics because... Um, uh, you, you have to look at what the drivers are of that and where are people picking up the signals that this curb appeal is, uh, you know, rides above everything else. And, you know, it, it really goes back to the kind of the corporate script of what is normalized and, and how many times you can get those messages out. So, you know, the, the, um, the, the boomerang here is how do we build these, you know, beautiful garden cities, you know, how do we use these design principles where uh, rather than looking at the engineering and the industrialization of landscapes, what if we start with uh, the principles of soil, sun, water, air, gravity? And um, when you were talking about aesthetics, too, I, I thought of the, the term wabi-sabi, you know, oh, yeah. the Japanese idea that the imperfect is the perfect, you know, that... Uh, uh, to, when they when they rake the leaves in the in the Japanese garden, they always go back and scatter a few to you know show the pattern again. And um, so I, I love this idea of um, our yards can mimic nature and our yards can thrive um, almost on their own horsepower if we just become good tenders. Exactly. So yeah, this this idea of of localized. Um, um, designs. And uh, just the last couple of days, I've come across some examples of uh, bicycle-powered uh, composting services. And it's it has started in a few cities. Um, 
and I'm, I'm excited because I'm going to interview some of the people just in the next few days about this, because we're putting together as a city, and in many cities in California are, are working on this as we speak, how do we um, create these big organic plans because the state is, uh, has basically mandated this to cities. You have to get organics out of landfills. And we've been covering a lot of trash with, with organics and landfills. So now how do we keep them, how can we keep them in our neighborhoods? And I, I kind of come back to this idea, and it's a little, you know, dream of mine, but I think it, it can be well facilitated and I think it could work where we start building green blocks and we start organizing with our neighbors. And it could be neighbor to neighbor, you know, two people working together and then three and then six and then ten. Um, and start, uh, you know, start working together to look at um, what fruit trees they might have individually, what they have room to put in, um, you know, how can, how can they work together to share food, how can they share uh, some of the clippings that come from their yards, maybe they've got too much one month, not enough on others. Um, so those start becoming pools. And I think, you know, there might be ways to do this through networks, through social networks, or just neighbor to neighbor, you know, have little potlucks and, and uh, um, talking, starting to talk green blocks. The thing that gets me excited is uh, some of the new landscape companies that are showing up. Oh, yeah. And they have names like Farmscapes, and, you know, they're basically organic gardeners that will work with homeowners who, you know, maybe they're busy and they don't have times and they're learning the skills and, you know, they just need some... They need someone at their side to help them out. And they'll put in garden beds. Uh, we have landscape designers now that are getting really good with water harvesting, with native plants, uh, you know, kind of combining different areas and zones around the house for food, habitat, shade, energy, materials, you know, medicines, all sorts of things. I mean, it's the, it's the kind of thing that the two of you have been studying for, you know, a long time now. And we're seeing that show up as, as uh, you know, little incubator business models, and that's spreading. So rather than um, the, the mow and blow crews who um, I think are kind of cowering to the curbside aesthetic, they mm -hmm. just, you know, shape things in balls and trim and, and you know, throw it, throw it all in the, uh, in the cart and leave, I think now we have some real thinking, some real imaginative, uh, some very bold entrepreneurs who are, who are moving these things forward. So that excites me a lot, that um, I think that the mulching, composting, you know, planting techniques are really starting to work together, and I'm seeing that shift in the, in the landscapes all over Southern California. And the more part we, of it is being, oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> Eric was trying to talk to you. everybody's, everybody's excited. Um, I, I think we start, um, you know, getting into a little bit of a chicken and an egg at this point, because as that mm -hmm. stuff becomes more popular, we need more, we need more compost, we need more mulch, you know, um, right. and so I, I was just at a training session for Waterwise Landscapers, sort of sitting in, in mm -hmm. the back as a teacher, um, and which was fascinating, you know, and they, and they are, you know, searching for good sources of these materials, because right now, of course, too much of it's being wasted and thrown away. Yeah. And it's a beautiful yeah. dream to see that all coming back, coming back into the communities and, and being saved. Um, 
I um, I was thinking about um, how wonderful it would be to have a neighborhood level composting because I have also been realizing more and more lately that not everybody can compost, not everybody wants to compost, and not everybody who right. composts makes good compost. And um, mm -hmm. you know, not mm -hmm. so good. Com There's nothing. It's kind of like pizza, like. <laughs> <laughs> Even if the compost <laughs> is bad, you know, it's still it's still compost and it's great. You know, it, it, if nothing else, it can be mulch, you know, but really right. good nutrient rich compost is there's an art behind that. I, I don't know that Eric really and I do. can do it. You know, it takes a lot of patience and attention, um, but it's it's like gold. It's absolute gold mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for igniting the soil biology that you were talking about early that earlier that creates that really nice spongy soil that feeds plants and holds water, you know, and makes the world a better place. So, uh, but we can't ask everybody to do that in their own yards because they're just not going to do it. And even if they have good intentions, they might not do it right anyway. So why not have that working at a, at a very local level where, you know, maybe somebody bikes around and picks up buckets of compost, or you can send your kids down the block to drop off the compost in the local collection bin, not your compost, but I'm, I'm sorry, but your food waste. And then that is all created, uh, turned into compost at a local level. And then um, the gardeners or the homeowners can pick up the compost and reapply it to their yard. So it becomes local closed loops. That's, yeah. that's paradise. Oh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's absolutely true. And I think that um, I, I have a feeling that we, if we went back in time before all the modern, efficient collection programs, um, more of that was being done. My grandmother composted in her little yard, and I don't think any clippings hardly ever left. And uh, it was a tidy, you know, cute little, you know, garden, raspberries and flowers, and she was just absolutely proud of that yard and loved working in it. Um, but like you say, we do live in modern times where people find that time is a little little crazy. So I think that we need a lot of overlays of, of access and information and, um, you know, ways that we can approach this so that we have, you know, we can serve a lot of people with it. Um, I think they're, you know, the collections aren't going to go back aren't going to disappear in, in any time soon. But I want to say that, you know, this drought and the seriousness of the drought has caused a real shift in thinking. And I'm seeing landscapes change like I've never seen before in the last couple of years. So it may be one of our best teaching tools. I'm, I'm sorry that it always, you know, that it comes to such a dramatic climax that then we change. But <laughs> that's how we are. It's, yeah, um, sometimes that's, you know, w we should take all those opportunities to, to make it the best we can and uh, use this drought as, you know, a, levering, uh, a leverage point to do better. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, I, I, I think we've got a lot of possibilities here. The other thing that I'd like to bring up is that um, we, have, we have almost flatlined energy consumption in California in spite of, of uh, big population increases. And the way that that energy has, has flattened out in terms of consumption is because of conservation. 
And the reason that we have so such good conservation programs in California is because the legislators, you know, a couple of few decades ago, were saying we need a public benefits program here in the state, and we need we need those programs to educate, to um, you know, do everything from changing out light bulbs and appliances, and you know, putting in insulation, double painting windows, and um, you know, doing all those things so we can start to live on little sips of electricity and gas and, you know, and, and um, rather than big gulps. So, you know, tempering our, our appetites through high efficiencies. Well, the same, I think, could be done now for our landscapes. If we take that public benefits model and how utilities move to efficiencies and rebates and, you know, incentives and so on. Um, that's happening now with lawns. Mm-hmm. You know, we're seeing so much per square foot if you take your lawn out. Unfortunately, <laughs> we aren't going to regenerative, you know, fecundity. We're, we're going to less. We seem to be drawing back on the greenery and the, and the biology putting in more um, gravel, gravel, right? cat boxes. Gravel, yeah, yeah. and uh, <laughs> decomposed granite. Yeah. You know, yeah, a little water is going to percolate through that, and the rest of it will wash out in the street. But, yeah, it comes down and to And we're education. getting a few little low-lying plants, but not very mm-hmm. many big canopies. I don't see food going in around this. I don't see gray water coming you know, into it. I don't see good designs for water harvesting. Um, so we can still take this further. I mean, I, I think the conversation has improved greatly in the last few years with the drought, um, but it, it still has so much further to go. And I think, Kelly, it kind of, you know, all these things are playing together in this this idea of aesthetic and curb appeal and, and what a normal, you know, suburban or urban home looks like. Um, I still think we're struggling with that. I think that might be one of our biggest cultural barriers because we have all these you know we have the we have the design know-how we have great examples all over the world that go back thousands of years even to the you know the early terraces of agriculture and how they were harvesting water on hillsides and you know um, just increasing Mm -hmm. the the outputs um, by contouring soils and in our cities, we've just kind of forgotten about that. We forget about how much water is running over our streets and out of our cities and how we're feeding that street rather than bringing water off the streets into our landscapes. Mm-hmm. Um, but but now we're getting more models of that, too. So um, I like to be hopeful in the, in the sense that we have some really good designers, some really good architects, some really good homeowners, um, and people like yourselves who are constantly exploring and writing and, and making these ideas public. So that's that's the great stuff. That's the regenerative, you know, uh, celebration that we all need to be dancing in. And uh, I think, you know, the more that we can do that, the the more we're going to feel satisfied, and you know, um, we'll feel a lot less cynical about moving forward in the world. Well, I think that's a great place to close. We need to get you back to work. Uh, but that's Joy, true. We've run out of time. Although, I, of course, I had one last oh, yeah? addendum question, which is to go back to your, your entrepreneurial uh, point there. You invited me a few years yeah. ago to a really fascinating meeting. I think he was a consultant. But basically, you guys were kicking around the idea of various entrepreneurial issues, to, uh, ways of dealing with organic waste. 
And I remember one of them was sort of that institutional stuff, the large restaurants and colleges and things like that. And you were, sure. it was interesting, you were, you were identifying some places where maybe someone could set up a business to compost that waste and then, you know, use it more locally. Is that, you think that's still a viable idea? I do. I, I, I really do. I think that the idea of, of uh, scalable containers for compost has, has only been scratched. And unfortunately, we're kind of locked up in the patent world on, uh, on composting bins that, mm. you know, it's kind of hard to wiggle through some of the, uh, the patent rights on, on existing bins. But I think that um, if you go back to farms and you look at how they create silage and silos, and, uh, you know, cows are eating fermented grass and fermented grains out of the bottoms of those silos and my dad always told me stories about the cows and how they would stumble around they loved silage but you know then they'd get a little tipsy and you know <laughs> they'd kind of <laughs> they'd kind of wobble out of the uh, out of the corral you know and go out to the pastures but um but i think that we have we have a lot of uh, experience now with microbial inoculants and we can break things down with virtually no smell. We can break things down in containers without air, um, or we can pre-digest them, I should say. Uh, there's some really interesting mixes that could make it possible on site with vertical, you know, vertical silos almost at uh, restaurants where it wouldn't take a lot of space. You'd have a little conveyor or something that carries it up to the top. You'd you would inoculate it with microbes so that it does its first uh, its first breakdown anaerobically. It could be pulled out of the bottom and hauled, or then you know finished composted. Um, but you can do this without any of those you know putrefying smells and odors that normally come with uncontrolled and untended um, organics. Um, so that that kind of excites me. I think that there's still some great engineering, and it doesn't have to be very fancy stuff. I think it, you know, the engineering needs to be done by soil and uh, soil uh, scientists and, and biologists that, and and good practical practitioners that kind of that can read um, these microbial balances, and they know how to tend those. And it's in Kelly. It is just like you know. There's good pizza and there's bad pizza, and it's kind of like you know. We need to have these cooking schools for organics, and uh, I think if there's anything that could come out of this big public benefits idea, it is that ratepayers should be paying to get educated in a very big way, as well as having services provided. Um, but those services shouldn't be as blunt as just hauling this stuff out of town and dumping it in a pile and, you know, never seeing it again. Mm. I think we need to have a much more integrated conversation about, you know, the benefits of, you know, how we how we live in cities and, um, you know, raise this dream of, of garden cities because mm -hmm. I think we have the potential there. And uh, if we can, you know, it's 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 all interrelated. And if we can bring down um, our dependency on individual automobiles and start using those streets in different ways, um, we can start using water in different ways. We can start using 
the discarded nutrients in better ways. And when you start adding those things up, you know, you get a few percentages here, a few percentages here, and a few percentages here, and suddenly, you know, you're living in park-like settings as opposed to, you know, urban mm-hmm. congestion and noise and motors and everything else. And uh, I think we need to raise that, raise that vision over and over and over again. And uh, I think we can get there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm, I'm excited that the, the state is actually looking at soils, organics, um, how do we do this better? And uh, I think cities can push on this. I think this is the time to call up, you know, for city engineers to call up their permaculture friends and say, how can we deal with this 20,000 tons of green waste? How can we keep this in the neighborhoods? How can we get neighbors educating each other? Do we need farm advisors in the city? Do we need, you know, soil advisors? You know, just like you would have someone that would rate refrigerator efficiencies, why don't we have people that are out there, you know, looking at soils and the, you know, the fertility of soils and the, and the health of those, mm-hmm. and 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 get that information into our cities. So, we have a lot of work to do, and we probably need to elect, you know, city biologists, city urban farmers, city sustainability uh, managers. Um, you know, we need to we need to raise that bar and start looking at how we create the lighter weight infrastructure of trucks and streets and, you know, big motors to move everything around. Um, I think I think we can totally do it, and there's some great examples out there to follow. Well, Craig, I think that's a great place to stop. I really want to thank you for, for doing the work you do and for providing us with a lot of inspiration. Yeah, thank you, Craig. There's a lot of mutual admiration on the phone here today, and I want to thank you <laughs> for putting all this together. So, um Let's have some fun, okay? <laughs> All right, let's do it, Craig. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Sure. All right, bye. Bye-bye. That was Craig Hempel, Recycling Coordinator for the City of Burbank. If you like this show, please share it with a friend via email or social media. To leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591. Or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. Subscribe to the Root Simple Podcast for free in the iTunes Store and on Stitcher. We are Root Simple on Twitter. And you can support the Root Simple Podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 